How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Just because ECMO arrives, just because there's physicians on scene, doesn't mean that you're transferring care right at that moment. They have a lot going on at that time. They're focusing strictly on the cannulation. Once the cannulation is complete and the patient is on pump, then at that point, it's when our first arriving crews essentially turn over care to the ECMO team and are no longer running that cardiac arrest in a traditional fashion. ECMO itself doesn't treat anything. What ECMO does is it allows us to provide the pulmonary lung support, cardiac heart support to keep a patient alive so that whatever treatable cause of their initial cardiac arrest can be treated. Welcome to EMS World Podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. And today I am joined by Albuquerque Fire Rescue EMS Chief. Chris Ortiz, as well as Dr. Darren Brody, EM and EMS physician at the University of New Mexico Hospital. I'm really excited to chat with you guys today about your exciting new innovation that you just launched, pre-hospital ECMO. Welcome to the podcast. How are you guys doing today? Doing very well. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having us. Could you introduce yourself with your title and credentials, please? Yes, ma'am. I'm the EMS chief for Albuquerque Fire Rescue, nationally registered paramedic, and have been in this position for two years. And this is Darren. I am, a, as you stated, an EM and EMS physician at the University of New Mexico and the division chief for EMS in the Department of Emergency Medicine. I'd love to congratulate you on the first pre-hospital ECMO application in the United States. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what it's like for you to say that Albuquerque Fire Rescue was the first agency to actually perform this procedure in the field. Talk a little bit about what it was like after your first patient, kind of what the mood was, and how you're feeling about it now. This is Darren. I, you know, this has been a you know fair amount of time in the making. You know, I think it's a great testament to the the service that we provide here in this Albuquerque metro area and the the quality of the Albuquerque Fire Rescue System and our partners at Albuquerque Ambulance and the whole ECMO program at the university hospital and, and getting everybody you know, together to do something like this. For Albuquerque Fire Rescue, we were happy to participate to uh, start this initiative. The one thing that we knew that we had the system already in place to be able to uh, make this a reality. So after we were able to successfully complete the first procedure, I think there was a sense of uh, pride and we were excited. A lot of our providers were excited about the opportunity. So overall, it's uh, re-energized the uh, EMS division and uh, we're just happy to happy to be a part of it and work along with a lot of great people here at UNM. Darren, let's step back a bit and define ECMO. What does it stand for? What is it? And why is it so important to bring this capacity to the field? 
you know, this is one of those terms that people are starting to become familiar with, but still new to some folks. ECMO itself stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's a real mouthful. Um, but this is, it's essentially heart-lung bypass, but instead of doing it the way it's done in the operating room setting, it's done with these very large cannulas that are placed into blood vessels. Uh, usually for our situation, we're talking about placing a very large cannula with ultrasound guidance into a femoral vein and another one into a femoral artery. And we're actually taking the majority of a patient's blood volume out of the venous side, putting it through a pump, sending it through an oxygenator that will, as the name implies, put oxygen in and, and actually remove CO2, and then actually force it back into an artery with enough pressure to actually hopefully perfuse all the way up to the brain. ECMO can be used in the hospital for a variety of things. When it is used in the setting of cardiac arrest, then we call that eCPR. And so we're doing pre-hospital ECMO or specifically pre-hospital eCPR for patients that are failing our traditional advanced life support measures, but have certain predictors that make us think that they have a treatable cause and a potential for a good outcome. And this is something that historically is not even done in all the academic emergency departments in the country. Only There's only certain centers in the country in the hospital that can provide this level of care, but doing it outside the hospital, that is something that they pioneered in Paris. We were fortunate to have our colleagues from Paris come here and a couple of years ago and, you know, help us and talk about their experience. And then there's just a, you know, a couple other places in the world that have, you know, begun to experiment with this, but we, you know, so far seem to be the the folks that in, in North America that have, you know, found a way to, to offer this. You mentioned that ECMO is typically only offered in hospitals and in a limited number of hospitals at that. So why the change? Can you explain why it's so important to get the patient cannulated in the field? We're talking about patients that are not responding to traditional cardiac arrest resuscitative measures. And the data that we have, you know, says that after about 15 or 16 minutes, and certainly after 20 minutes, the chance of a meaningful neurologic outcome for somebody in cardiac arrest, you know, really drops off precipitously, you know, almost to zero. So there, there is the one issue from that perspective of, you know, wanting to, you know, offer something soon. But the the presumption is that these patients, although they're getting CPR, that that CPR, even when done perfectly, is not nearly equivalent to a normal cardiac output. And so we're really worried about the brain and the brain's oxygenation level. So that's why we're, you know, the sooner that you can get somebody on to bypass, then the sooner that we can make sure that the brain is getting the full amount of oxygen that it needs. So Darren, can you clarify that ECMO is essentially letting the heart and the lungs be perfused and making sure that the rest of the organs in the body are also perfused so that, say, you could bring the patient to the cath lab and perform a cardiac cath or 
take care of another intervention while they are being sustained? ECMO itself doesn't treat anything. What ECMO does is it allows us to provide the pulmonary lung support, cardiac heart support to keep a patient alive so that whatever treatable cause of their initial cardiac arrest can be treated. Um, So we're looking for patients that we think have a treatable cause. And the main one that you alluded to is a patient who had a massive myocardial infarction, heart attack. They have an occlusion in a coronary vessel. We can take them to the hospital on ECMO, and then the cardiologist will take them to the cath lab and can actually do um, their usual procedures while the patient is on ECMO. Chris, you and I are paramedics. We know there are skeptics among us. If you told me we were going to do heart-lung bypass in the field, I'd for sure be pretty wary of how we could actually accomplish this procedure. How did you get buy-in from the providers in Albuquerque? I think if I was being 100% honest, I would let you know that I was skeptical when we first had started having the conversations early on. The idea was innovative. I thought it was great. I wasn't sure if we'd be able to put all the pieces together to be able to actually do the procedure successfully. I'll admit that I was a little skeptical when we first started. As we continue to meet, kind of whiteboard the ideas, talk more and more about how we were going to be able to implement this from an operational standpoint, we started to get some steam. I was starting to get a little more excited about it. It looked a little more feasible. And then once we got into the training portion, working with our field providers, um, I anticipated a little bit of pushback just because as most of us know in EMS and especially fire departments, a lot of times there's two things we hate, the way things are and change. So I knew that uh, we potentially could have some pushback and guys weren't going to be receptive to it. However, we were pleasantly surprised about the, the level of excitement that all of our providers had doing a new initiative that was new to them, new to the, to the EMS uh, division and new to EMS in general. They were excited. Once we actually started to provide the training, look at what uh, operationally we would have to put in place to be able to make it come to fruition, um, we had full buy-in from the administration of the Albuquerque Fire Rescue Uh, administration from the city of Albuquerque. Everybody was all in on this um, initiative. So um, once we all started to put it into practice, I think everybody felt a little more comfortable with it and we knew we could make it work. Operationally, you all decided to place the ECMO-1 ambulance just at one firehouse with a dedicated trained crew. Can you talk about the decision-making process that led to this? Are these trained firefighter paramedics kind of kept out of service except for calls on ECMO-1? And what are the special equipment considerations that go into stocking this ambulance? So a couple things. The proximity to University Hospital uh, for Fire Station 3 uh, was the first decision point. The hospital um, within less than a quarter mile uh, from Fire Station 3. So we knew that with the unit housed inside of the fire station, As long as we had a dispatch that met criteria, it would allow our providers the opportunity to expeditiously get to UNM, pick up the staff with any needed equipment, and be able to make it to any point in the city within a specific given time frame um, to be able to make the procedure a success. So that was the first decision point, was just uh, proximity to UNMH. The second part of that was the personnel and staff that we have assigned to Fire Station 3. 
there's a, a multiple stations, so there's multiple apparatus to include a uh, rescue or an ambulance, a uh, heavy technical rescue squad, as well as an engine um, there located in that station. So multiple personnel, people trained uh, from EMTB all the way through EMTB, uh, ET paramedic. Um, so we knew we had multiple staff with um, a lot of um, advanced providers there who'd be able to, to make this become a reality. So that was the first step. The next step was finding an apparatus to be able to, to store in that station. So what we did uh, with Albuquerque Fire Rescue is we worked alongside of our fleet division to be able to locate a rescue that uh, was no longer a frontline rescue, but was still in service. So essentially a spare unit. Uh, we brought that back to the physicians at UNMH, had them take a look at it, asked them what would it take to retrofit this unit to be able to um, be amenable to be able to per perform a procedure like this in the back. They gave us the sketches, the needs and the requirements that they would have. We took it back to our fleet uh, division who was able to retrofit the vehicle that uh, that we use today. Um, so essentially a surgical suite on wheels, for lack of a better word. Um, so all of the pieces were then in place from an operational <coughs> standpoint to be able to make it happen. We have specialty equipment that UNM provided that's kept on the truck um, all the time, temperature controlled and monitored and checked daily. And then we also have equipment that stays with the physicians that uh, on that pickup from UNMH, um, the doctors will bring with them. Another thing I noticed in your setup is that you decided to use a hand crank as a motor rather than an expensive ECMO machine. There's a great photo that Dr. Kim Pruitt, your medical director, provided that shows the paramedic in the back cranking this uh, machine. Talk a little bit about what the advantages and disadvantages are of this decision and why you landed on this type of power. The hand crank is actually the use of it in this, con you know, in this situation is the brainchild of uh, Dr. John Marinaro, who is the director of our adult ECMO program and an emergency and critical care physician here at the university. Any ECMO machine has a backup system in case of a power failure, which is the hand crank. Um, we even had a situation on a inter-facility transport because we also do, in addition to our pre-hospital ECMO, we also go out to other, um, through UNM and our flight program lifeguard, we go out to other hospitals to do cannulations at other hospitals to transport patients back into UNM for ECMO, on ECMO, or occasionally out of state. And we've had situations where um, we had a power failure and we had to utilize that hand crank and realized how well that crank works. And when you match that up with a flow meter that tells you, just like for a patient who's on ECMO, what the flows are, and we have the ability to put in arterial lines and check a patient's blood pressure, there's really um, nothing that mandates having the actual ECMO machine there. And, and that innovation um, really opened up um, a lot of opportunity for us. It allowed us to use a less expensive uh, circuit. And it also meant that we didn't have to have one of our ECMO specialists or perfusionists on call as well. Um, to, you know, to go out in the field and kind of minimize our resources. So that uh, really opened the door for us. 
Chris, this is obviously logistically a big challenge to set up all of the equipment that you need for treating a patient with ECMO. Can you talk through the logistics of setting up the tent? Also, how you arrived at the feet-first cot insertion, the way that the patients are continuing to be treated by the EMS providers on scene, even while everyone else is getting ready for the ECMO procedure, how you gain consent um, and the actual procedure on scene. Maybe talk through how many providers are involved and what their tasks are. The um, closest responding engine and rescue to that individual's um, residence or their where they collapsed, that, that's who's going to be there performing all ACLS measures, working under our normal guidelines, our normal protocols. They're essentially working the cardiac arrest no differently than any other arrest. Um, during this time is when the ECMO units, just based on the dispatch criteria, they're currently en route. Uh, there's fluid communication on scene between uh, the first arriving crews, the EMS physicians who are also en route, as well as our EMS supervisors, and then also to include uh, ECMO-1 or the, the ECMO unit. When the ECMO unit arrives on scene, uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be a transfer of care from the first arriving crews over to the ECMO unit. So the way we trained on this, which we always knew was going to be fluid because every situation, every residence is set up differently, would be that either the ECMO team, uh, upon their arrival, when they're getting gowned up and getting the sterile area ready, uh, will either a member will, who's free will bring the gurney from the ECMO unit to the first arriving crews, or they'll bring the patient as close to curbside as possible to be able to put them onto the ECMO gurney. Once the patient, as you described, was uh, loaded in reverse load, basically feet first into the ambulance, they'll start prepping the patient for uh, the procedure. So they're going to be undressed from the belt down, giving access to be able to do the sterile prep. They're going to be moved to an area right behind the rescue, the ECMO rescue. Um, we'll set up essentially a uh, easy up or a tent that's going to provide for patient privacy as well as protect the providers from the elements. Uh, once the area is set up, then they're going to have the patient uh, wheeled into the back of the ECMO unit where the physicians uh, are in the back along with the AFR ECMO team to serve as first assist. During that time, the initial arriving crews are still performing their ACLS procedures. That's what we wanted to make clear to our providers was that just because ECMO arrives, just because there's physicians on scene, doesn't mean that you're transferring care right at that moment. They have a lot going on at that time. They're focusing strictly on the cannulation. Once the cannulation is complete and the patient is on pump, then at that point is when our first arriving crews essentially turn over care to the ECMO team and are no longer running that cardiac arrest in a traditional fashion. I think one of the uh, the most difficult things that uh, we came across was uh, the physicians figuring out exactly which order their bean dip was going to be in, and I'll let the doc describe what the bean dip as far as the equipment. Other than watching the docs kind of argue over which exactly was the best uh, ingredient for the part of the bean dip, then I think uh, as far as we went, it all went pretty smooth. Oh, I think we're going to need to hear more about this seven-layer bean dip. What are the layers composed of? I imagine this is something that is an equipment need so that you guys understand what goes first, what goes second, what goes third? We aren't operational unless we have the right team on duty at Station 3 
one of our three primary Albuquerque fire EMS captains has to be on duty. We restricted this to start up to three of our EMS physicians out of a, a group of 11. And um, of the docs at the hospital that do the cannulation procedures, we restricted this to three of those individuals, trying to keep the team small enough that everybody could train together, work together, and get familiar. The three docs um, that do this procedure, I mentioned Dr. John Marinaro earlier. We also have Dr. Todd Detmer and Dr. Sandeep Guliani. Dr. Guliani uh, was the one who came up with the the now infamous bean dip, which was just a seven-layer bean dip, which was a way of setting up the equipment on the way to a call that would allow you to essentially have things in, you know, sort of loaded in reverse order so that the person who was there, the fire uh, fighter paramedic, usually a paramedic, doesn't actually have to be a paramedic from station three, you know, if they take whatever is on the top of the the seven layer dip first, then they know that that's the first thing that the cannulators are going to need and working their way down through the layers. But um, as was mentioned, there's been, you know, a lot of evolution in this. There was nothing to, to look at as a model um, since we're kind of doing this different than the way the our colleagues in France are doing it. So really, it's been a work in progress. And we, we do have fun uh, debates and arguments over, you know, exactly how to set things up. And, and each of the cases we've had, we've, we've certainly learned from. Well, so far, you've had two patients. Unfortunately, neither survived. But you did this procedure of pre-hospital ECMO on them. What are you thinking about now and speculating about in terms of what went well, um, what may have contributed to their survival or to them not surviving? Nobody is really going on ECMO in less than 20 minutes from time of arrest. And chances are it's considerably longer than that. So you're taking a patient who essentially has less than a 1% chance of a meaningful survival. And at that point in time, turning that survival into about a 30% chance of a meaningful survival. And that's, again, some of the published data. And that's our hospital ER, eCPR data um, is, is very similar to that, actually a little bit better. That is remarkable to go from basically a patient who would probably have their resuscitation terminated on scene to having, you know, a one in three chance of a, a reasonable outcome. But that also means, you know, we're not expecting the majority of patients still will not survive. So we're, you know, our best hope is somewhere around that 30, 35% chance of survival. So it's, you know, this is a difficult business and we're giving people the best possible chance. Um, but I can't say we're shocked um, that a patient wouldn't survive. We are continuing to look at those cases, inclusion and exclusion criteria that were utilized, and also what other technology and improvements in the system we can make to you know, improve uh, their chance of survival. And it really comes down to how well can we oxygenate the brain prior to them going on to ECMO. That's really that's where the money is. Guys, I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this podcast who might want to hear your advice and your lessons learned. What would you say to other agencies or EMS leaders who are thinking of implementing their own pre-hospital ECMO? I think one of the, uh, one of the tenants that we, that we worked off when building this program 
was not necessarily waiting for perfect. I think that you could always um, try to work out every standard operating procedure, every guideline, have everything planned out, and you could spend years and years um, trying to perfect it before you actually wanted to try it. And I think we worked from a, from a different mindset to where we didn't want to wait for perfect. We knew we had all the right pieces in place. We knew we had a, a strong training base and we knew we had the right providers and the right collaborations to be able to make it happen now. Um, and not to say that we rushed into anything because everything was thoughtful and very specific as to why we did things, but um, we knew there were going to be bugs. We knew that potentially um, our first couple of cases might not be successful, which is which has turned out the case. The procedure themselves being successful, but not having the outcomes that everyone wants and is anticipating. So, waiting for perfect, I think, would be the um, would would have set us back a lot longer. And I think that having that first two cases, especially the first case under our belt, and learning uh, what best practices were there, what areas of opportunity we still have. Uh, would be the best advice that I would give another organization who is, is looking to implement a project such as this. It's too soon to tell whether this is going to be standard of care everywhere. I personally have witnessed some just amazing saves from ECMO and eCPR of patients that you know I'm I am positive would not have survived otherwise. So um, I do think there's something to this, and I, I do think people will see more of it. As Chris alluded to, and when you asked, I mean, we're on the physician side also, you know, having other places, you know, around the country, and around the world starting to ask questions about our system. And, and we're absolutely happy to work with folks to, you know, certainly share our experiences and see if the best case scenario, I think, for, for both Chris and I would be that some other system comes up with a better way to do what we're doing and that then we can then learn from them and, you know, make our system better too. Darren and Chris, thank you once again for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. The experiences you've had, I'm sure, will inform best practices in the future for pre-hospital ECMO. Once again, congratulations. Would you mind sharing your contact information in case listeners would like to get in touch with you? It's going to be my first initial and my last name, all one word. So D is in dog, B is in boy, R, A, U, D is in dog, E, at salud, which is health in Spanish. So S-A-L-U-D dot U-N-M dot E-D-U. I can be reached at, by email at C like Chris, G like girl, Ortiz, O-R-T-I-Z at C-A-B-Q dot gov. Thanks again, Darren and Chris, for sharing your time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more on the pre-hospital ECMO program, go to emsworld.com and read a deeper dive into the program, including the details of the setup, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, and more about the collaborative efforts that Albuquerque Fire Rescue and the University of New Mexico Hospital put together to make this program a success. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this article and hundreds more like it at emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020 at EMS World Expo.